We're going to look at courage. Uh, we're going to look at obedience. You know, those are all those are all qualities that the Christian is to possess. Now, we're to be obedient, courageous people, uh, people of character, uh, not be characters, but people that have character. So that's what we're going to look at today as we as we study the second part of David and Goliath. If you would please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse 12. 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 12, says, Now David was the son of the uh, Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of those three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second him was Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Now, folks, verse 15 is very important. Do you see what it says? That David went back and forth, back and forth. Keep that in mind. Verse 16, the Philistines came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they that are, the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered into order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that uh, as this word has been read, Lord, that the, that the truth of it will enter into our hearts and our minds. <clears throat> Father, that we will receive this word and know that this is a word from you. Lord, you, you chose and you determined to put this passage in, in Scripture, Father, so that we would remember it and we would learn from it. Now, Father, we ask that you illumine our hearts and our minds, enlighten us to your truth, Lord, that from it, Lord, that not only would we learn, but we would apply truth principles in our lives, that we would walk as your disciples. In Christ's name, amen. So as we begin to examine our passage this morning, we will find for the second time now uh, in, in, in Samuel's, uh, in Samuel's uh, uh, word, uh, this, this history, 
in Samuel's history that we find the name that David is, is spoken of. The first time is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and where, where we find it in 1 Samuel 16 that God has appointed and God has anointed David to be the heir to the throne of Israel. Now, I want you to think of something. You remember when, when Samuel went to anoint Paul, uh, Saul, I'll call him Paul, went to anoint Saul as, as the king of Israel. And, and, he, and, you know, Samuel was very reluctant to want to do that because he looked at Saul and he says, you know, if we put Saul as king, what we're going to lose in Israel is a theocratic government. That God will no longer be the king of Israel. God will no longer be over Israel's forces, over Israel's army, but now we're going to have a human being doing this. So Samuel thinks to himself, not only would God be set to the side, but I will be set to the side as God's prophet, God's spokesman to the people. And now some human king is going to be in charge. So Samuel goes out to, to anoint him as, as king. And you need to remember something, that when Samuel went to do this, he chose in order to dump some oil of anointing on him, because you pour oil over the, over the king's head, in order to anoint him, he chose the smallest possible receptacle that he could find in order to put oil in it. That is what he thought about this new king. I'm going to use the smallest, the smallest flask, the smallest test tube, the smallest thing I can possibly find, I'm going to put some oil in it. It's like when you go to the, uh, to the uh, department store and they give you a little tester of, of perfume or something like that. There's barely enough, I mean, one squeeze and it's done. That's about, he used the smallest thing he could use to anoint Saul as king. A little dab will do you. That's all you're going to get, Saul. But when David, in chapter 16, is anointed as king, you know what he did? Samuel went and got the biggest ram's horn he could find, some big old horn like this, and he filled it with oil, and he dumped it on him. He was one oily, slimy mess when Samuel got done with him. But he says, man, this is God's anointed and something else, when, when, when Jesse's sons came by, one by one, and Eliab comes from the first one, Eliab, the, 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 the senior of all the sons, the eldest, he comes by and, and says, surely, Lord, this is the one, this big guy, this handsome guy, this tall, strapping guy, this is the guy that's going to be a king. God says, no, it ain't. And the next one comes by, and the next one, and seven come by. And Samuel says, is that all the sons you got, just seven? He said, well, I got one other, but he's just out there in the fields taking care of sheep. And God says, Samuel, that's the one. That's the one. Anoint him. This young fellow. Have no idea how tall he was. Maybe a small guy. I don't know. A lot of energy. Samuel, that's the one. 
dumped the oil on him. God's anointed, God's chosen vessel, God's ambassador, that's who David was. And God has selected him out of all of Israel's citizenry. Here we have an heir to ascend to the throne, not an heir from the bloodline of Saul, but an heir whom God has sovereignly determined from which every king to sit upon the throne will carry in part David's DNA. Not only that, but that, that DNA genealogy in, in a spiritual manner will carry through to the very one and that's a one with a capital O, the very one who will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That same spiritual DNA flows right through the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Listen to this from Luke 1.32. It says, he, that's speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So here in 1 Samuel 16 and in 17, we find a young man named David, not a warrior-like, but rather a keeper of a sheep who is now brought to the forefront from a position of obscurity and humility, a nobody. No one would ever think that this young man would be the one anointed to be the king. He might be the last chosen. But here we find the blessing of humble beginnings from which David went from a place of being a caretaker of his father's sheep to become a conqueror for the father's sheep. It's just as we read in Proverbs 15, and before honor comes humility. So if you look at our text, look at verses 12 through 15 of our text. David is given a task by his father, Jesse. And, and this, this is the task. Go to the camp of Israel's army and tend to the need of your brothers by providing them with food. That's the job. That's the assignment. And do you see a trend here in the life of David? Number one, tend to the sheep. And number two, tend to the needs of others. That's it. That's his whole job. Take care of the sheep and take care of the people. That's it. David, that's all you're going to do. And David says, you got it, Dad. That's what I'm going to do. There is no high and lofty position given him. No stately office that awaits him. He just simply told, tend to my sheep. Listen to that. Jesse says to his son David, Je uh, David, tend to my sheep. Does this remind you of Christ's command to Peter in the last chapter of John's gospel, chapter 21? Three times Jesus is speaking to Peter in verses 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 21 of John's gospel. And Jesus says to Peter, because now Peter is going to be the, the, that, that first under shepherd under Jesus Christ, isn't he? He says to Peter, he says, Peter, tend my lambs. Peter, shepherd my sheep. And then he says, Peter, tend my sheep. That's all I want you to do. Take care of the sheep. Just like David. 
The notable people in the minds of this world are those who stand dutifully in the front lines. And here, those who stand on the front lines will be David's brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. They are in the ranks of Israel's army. They followed King Saul. They were the ones with sword and shield in hand. They who readied themselves for battle, hopefully to have possibly some acclaim and some reward. Saul, we will stand with you. We have our shield and our sword in hand. We're ready for battle. Those are the ones who get the medals, the ribbons, the applause, the acclaim, the approbation of man. These are our champions. But David, David, he merely possessed, he merely uh, had the, the provisions to satisfy the hunger of those who would soon be engaged in war. Your job, David, is just bring them food. So what's to be learned here? In a world where so many who desire to be the next idol, the the next superstar, or the next to be given some award or trophy, listen, in due time, idols become yesterday's has-beens. Superstars become yesterday's memories and soon forgotten. And medal and trophy winners find their past successor layered in dust. But character, character is embedded in the heart of the individual. It says to all people of all generations that one's character was, is, and will always be a product of faithfulness to one's calling. It is established in the person who no matter how menial the task nor how immense the obstacle will stand and say, as Isaiah said, they will look at that and they will say, here am I, send me. Who will tend my sheep? David says, here am I, send me. Who will go and feed and bring food to the brothers? Here am I, send me. That was his task as given by his father Jesse. Bring food to your brothers and also for the commander of the army. Also bring back some news as to how things are going. In short, David's job was to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to the valley of Elah. And what is significant about that? The valley of Elah from Bethlehem, where David is from, is 15 miles one way. He didn't have a car, gas or electric. He didn't have a bike. Didn't take a train or a bus. He walked it. He walked it. Back and forth and back and forth. 15 miles each way, 30 miles each time. That's all he did. So friends, perhaps your job, your task, your reasonable service to God and His church is to go back and forth to the valley of Elah. Maybe that's all you're going to do, just go back and forth to the valley of Elah. 
That is, you're going to go from one point of service to the next point of service. No one is going to, no one's going to go, hooray! You'll be unnoticed. You'll just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You, you, you may serve unnoticed by many or most, but you will never be, never be unnoticed by God. Because when your task is done, when your journey is complete, and you stand before the King of glory, and he looks at you, and all you've done is go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, unnoticed by the church, unnoticed by others, he will look at you and he will say, Welcome, thou good and faithful servant, because you've done what God has ordained and asked you to do. Tend to the sheep. Tend to the sheep. Listen to these words, which you've heard many times before from this pulpit. From 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found what? That they be found faithful. He didn't say it's required that you be found popular. It doesn't say that you are to be found rewarded or applauded, but you're to be found faithful. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse commanded him and came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. David again is found to be in faithful obedience to his father's commands. But here, but right here in verse 20, something new, something different happens. It's not just back and forth. There is something added to this. Something that demonstrates the providence of God. Because he's done this before. He's gone back and forth. But something is different this time. Here we find that both the Philistines and the Israelite armies are set in battle formation. Both are now prepared for battle. They have faced each other for almost seven weeks, 40 days. But now, the war cry. Now the battle formation. Now they're ready for battle. David's father had probably thought little about sending him to each of uh, to, uh, to to Elah at a, at this critical period. He wouldn't want his youngest son to be a part of the battle. However, God had determined in His sovereign wisdom. You know, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, you, all, you need to realize something. When God acts sovereignly, when God sets his heart into a, into a matter of being a decree, and God's, God's, sovereign will, God's sovereign will is set in place, even the gates of hell, Satan and all of his minions... Not a, not a church, not a person, not a power, not a government, not a country. No one can thwart God's sovereign plan. Nothing. God is bigger than anything. So God has set his sovereign plan. He says, listen, I'm going to make this work out because when this is done, David is going to be king. David is going to be king and Goliath is going to be dead. Wow. 
God had sovereignly determined in his wisdom that this would be the time, the place, the circumstance in David's life that would prepare him to go from the pasture land to the very throne of Israel. David, it's time. It's time. Now, the armies are ready to engage in warfare, verse 21. And this verse reads, army, listen, army against army. This is not, this is not with assault rifles. This is a battle that's going to be hand to hand. You don't look at your enemy at 100 yards or 200 yards or 300 yards away or a mile away. There's not artillery coming in from 26 miles out. This is hand to hand. You know you're going to get bloodied and beaten and battered. This is hand to hand. And it says in verse 22, when, when those two armies are facing each other, and they know that, some of them know that there's going to be death and destruction, that they may not come home to wife or children. You know that there's going to be death out there. Listen, in verse 22, it says, David ran, David ran to the battle line. Great theologian, Yogi Berra, once said, when you, come, when you come to a fork in the road, what do you do, folks? You take it. The strange thing is, the both, both sides of that road are not, are not even in a way of worth, are they? You, you come to a fork in the road, and folks, when you come to that fork in the road in your life, and there is a giant out there, whomever or whatever that giant might be, but you come to the fork in the road, and you have a choice to make. Either you're going to go with David, and you're going to run to the battle line where the giant is at, or you're going to take the other fork in the road and evade and avoid the battle. Which road will you take? Will you go to the fork in the road where you have to put on the armor of God and face your giant? Or will you take the fork in the road where you will live in timidity, obscurity, anonymity? Which road will you take? Friends, what shall we do when the battle draws near to us? And you say, Pastor, what battle are we speaking of? The battle that will determine the metal of your Christianity, folks. Last week I mentioned our, our threefold enemy, the, the flesh and the world and the devil. I, I said that to you, and you're, you're very familiar with these, these for years, that we face a threefold foe, the, the, the world, flesh, and the devil. These enemies are, are fierce giants that have as their intent to destroy your Christian testimony, to bring your faith to become nothing more than a train wreck. The flesh that you face is inward. This is inward force, this inward power. This inward temptation within you, and it seeks to bring you to a place where you covet what others have. It is lustful, it is parasitic, and it is tormenting. 
it, it will destroy you because you'll always be wanting more, more. The lust of the eyes, you, you cannot behold everything and say, I'm satisfied because the more lustful look that you have, the more you desire. It will eat you up. It will destroy you. But there's more than just the flesh. There is the world. And that world is not inward. It is outward. And it's exterior. It seeks to cause you to, to approve of others' applause and acclaim. You want to be the star, the lead. You're in love with fame and fortune and opulence. Oh, man, if I could just live like a millionaire, a billionaire, if I can just be like that. I, I think I might have mentioned the story to you before, but let me share it again. Just indulge me for just a moment. Young pastor goes to a church. Hopefully it won't be this one, but he comes to a church. And uh, as, as, he, as he's moving into his church office, uh, the, the maintenance guy's there. He says, uh, Pastor, what, what, would, what, what would you like over your door? And, and the pastor says, well, he says, you know, if you will put down my, my name and then uh, pastor whatever and then put down B-A-M-A-M-D-I-V-P-H-D and your humble servant. You see, there is something in us because the world says that it's necessary. There is something that says, I have got to have, I have got to have a title. I've got to have fame. I have to be recognized. I was listening to David Jeremiah just a couple, three days ago as I was traveling to church. And, and he made a statement that really stuck with me. He says, you know, we need to decide, is, is it better to be a failure and the church a success or for you to be, excess, be a success and the church a failure? What's more important to you? The applause that you may get or I may get or the applause that the church may get from the God of glory, when the time comes when he takes his church out, he says, come home. We want the applause to be for God's church, don't we? We as individuals, folks, we are just, we are just individuals. We are, we are sinners. We are sinners who daily need to repent of our sin. But Jesus has for his body the church. And that church must be successful. That church is to be, it's to be, listen, it is the church that is triumphant. We talk about people having a triumphant life. What we need is a church that's triumphant. We are so interested in ourselves. Folks, how will there ever be a revival in the church when all we think about is revival in myself? Let the church be renewed. But we have another adversary out there. Yes, there's the flesh and there's the world, but there's also the devil. And he is neither interior or exterior. He is supernatural. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 2, that he is the prince of the power of the air. Whose only objective is to destroy you. He does so initially by causing you to doubt the veracity that is the truth of God's word. 
He would cause you to consider the, the very thing that he did to Eve, he wants to do to you and me. He wants to do to this church as he's done to many churches. Because here's what he did to Eve and here's what he would love to do to this church and every church that exists. And that is to say this, that you would begin to believe what he says when he says, Yea, hath God said. And the moment, the moment you hesitate with that, the moment you hesitate with that, the negativity comes in. Because from, from doubt comes denial. And he will challenge your heart, and he will challenge your soul, challenge your mind, and he'll say, yea, hath God said? And brothers and sisters, we better say, yes, God says, thus saith the Lord. Be certain about where you stand. Satan stands against us as a roaring lion, a serpent, an accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, and yes, even as an angel of light. Church, what shall we do? What shall we do? Our answer is found in James 4, 7, where James says, Submit therefore to God. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And you know, when James says resist, sometimes we think, if I'm going to resist him, then I'm going to get away from him. No, 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 no. That's not what resist means. When he says resist, James is not saying that we should run from him, but resist means to stand firm against him. Stand your ground against your enemy. In essence, turn, turn and run to the battle line. Stand your ground. Listen, your God is bigger than Satan. Your God is bigger than the flesh. Your God is bigger than the world. Do you recall when Jesus sent his followers out to bring in uh, bring in a spiritual harvest of certain cities to which Jesus would soon be going. He says, listen, I'm going to be going there. Would you guys go and you pave the way for me? Pave the way for me. Church, pave the way for me. You go to these cities and tell them I'm coming. Oh, church, listen. The world needs to know that Jesus is coming. So Jesus sends out his 70. He says to them, Listen, because our tendency is to take the fork that leads away from the... No, 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 no. Jesus says, I want you to go. He says, go. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then we read, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like, like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. Oh, church, you are like David with a slingshot ready to go. You know, the only thing that's keeping us from knocking a giant down, we're not willing to let one end of the slingshot empty itself, are we? We keep on twirling it. But you know, that sling that David has, he's twirling it. You've got to let go of one end. Sometimes we, we keep on doing this, and our, our, our intentions are real good, but our aim is real bad. Let me tell you why you will win. Because Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, talking to, talking to his disciples, 
He says, the gates, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, his church. You are the church of the living God. The church of the army of the Lord stands against the enemy of giants. Like David, God's shepherd servant, let us run to the battle line. Leave whatever baggage that, we may, that may encumber us and let us shout our war cry. You see, our war cry is one based on faith, isn't it? That, we have, that you have faith, that we have faith, that God, that God is going to win. That his people will, listen, because Christ has overcome, we will overcome. Because, listen, because Christ is seated in glory, you are seated in glory. Because Christ has been raised up, you have been raised up. You are winners. And our war cry is faith is the victory. On every hand, the foe we find drawn up in dread array. Let tents of ease be left behind and onward to the fray. Salvation's helmet on each head with truth all girt about. The earth shall tremble neath our tread and echo with our shout. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we can stand firm. He is our rock. He is our shield. Father, we are are more than winners with Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that that we can be here to worship you, Lord. Lord, you're the champion. Undefeated. Father, we just thank you that We have this moment, this moment together just to worship you and to thank you, Lord, for for being who you are. And Lord, we just bless you. Father, if there's someone here today that that you have, that that you're ministering to, Lord, that, that, that you have opened their heart up to believe who you are. I pray, Lord, that that you will you'll show that, Lord, you will demonstrate that here today and bring that person to come up so that we could celebrate with them that Christ has become new to them, become real to them. Lord, that, that they are changed. The old has passed away and new things have become with them, have happened to them. Bless you, Jesus. We thank you in your name. Amen. My friend, here, here, here's, what, here's what you need. You need to know Every one of you, me too, every, every, every one of us, we need to know that it's Christ in us who's the hope of glory. But maybe there's someone here today that does not have Christ in them. If you're without Christ, you're without hope, and there is no glory. I'm going to ask you today, if God has opened your heart up to believe who He is, that, that Jesus Christ is God, and you will repent of your sin and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, Lord, I'm a sinner. Take away that which separates you from me. You become my Lord. You become my Savior. I receive your gift of salvation today. Thank you, Jesus. You know, if if that is what you want today, 
The Bible says that if you put your trust in him, the old things are passed away, new things have come.